We now enter into our time of teaching, and I, and I, and I say that in part because today, um, if you did not bring your thinking cap, Amazon Prime it, Prime Now, get it here. <laughs> You're going to need it. Today is big. We've got a lot to get through, so I'm going to get right into it. But, but I say this up front, just uh, I pray Let's actually just pray real quick. Father God, send your spirit that you might illuminate our minds, our hearts, and our hands so that we might understand what you're trying to tell us today through your word. God, I, I know that we have a lot, so I just pray for my friends uh, here today um, that you would just give them an extra measure of, of patience and focus and attention because I think what, what you have to say today is important, as it always is, uh, but today we really need your help to hear what you're saying uh, through your word. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you don't have your Bible in your hand, would you get a Bible? There's some on the ends of the rows. You could ask somebody to just pass it down to you. We are in the book of First Peter, which is near the back of the Bible. It's a letter written to the churches in the first century. So uh, just a couple decades after Jesus' death, uh, Churches sprung up, groups of Christians began to meet together, and as these churches tried to figure out how to live in the world, um, the apostles wrote letters, apostles being the ones whom Jesus himself commissioned and sent out into the world to be the leaders of the early church to help them understand how they might live and be. And of course, because this is not just a book for them, but a book for us, what is said here strangely resonates even today, 2,000 years later. So let me just reset this series that we're in, in the book of First Peter. Uh, we're calling it Christian in the City, and we're doing that because being a Christian in an urban melting pot such as Seattle can be disoriented, or should I say will be disorienting, confusing, frustrating. It will be a long journey, and it's tough to do it well. And so we need these words to understand how to be a Christian when there are so many different uh, ideas of the world, faiths, worldviews represented in our neighbors, coworkers, people living and breathing around us. So how do we do this? Now, you should be encouraged that this is nothing new as we read this book here. The Apostle Peter was writing to a group of churches. This would have been a secular letter passed around to churches in what was called then Asia Minor, part of the Roman Empire. He was living at the time in Rome and writing back to Asia Minor, which would have been uh, now modern-day Turkey. Several churches would have seen this letter, studied this letter, read this letter aloud. And these churches were trying to figure out the same thing. How do I continue to live a, go a godly life, a life that is honoring to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the midst of the persecution and turmoil that they were facing because of their faith. So being a Christian back then in these urban uh, contexts was difficult. Being a Christian now can be difficult. And so those who Peter was writing to, they were confused. Why is this so hard? They were scared. What, what if I lose everything, including my life, because of my faith in Jesus? It was disorienting. Uh, the city doesn't prioritize the same things that I do, and so their faith was wavering. They were wondering, is it really worth it? So this is the context into which Peter is writing how to live and be in a, in a time, in a place like that, not so different than ours 
And so we can learn much about how to honor God while also developing relationships with those whom we live amongst that see the world very differently. How do we do both of those? How do we honor God and develop friendships with those who live so differently? Well, the short answer goes like this. Focus on yourself. (laughs) Is that what you thought I'd say? Focus on yourself and not on them. Now, I am not pitching to you right now in this moment the very popular slogan, you do you and I'll do me. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, what I'm saying is something very, very different. I'm saying you focus on you, which is to say growing up into the fullness of what it means to be a follower of Christ, growing up into Christ, that is actually your way of caring for your neighbor, those whom you share this city with. And hopefully the reason why that is will make much more sense at the end of the sermon today than it does right now. In the flow of Peter's thought in his letter, starting in verse 13, which is where we'll start today, we're going to see now a major shift from what he's been saying so far, which is the is, this is the way it is, and we sung that at the beginning of uh, our sermon today. This is who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ. Christ went to the cross and he has died for you and you have heard of these things if you hear it last week and you're quite lucky to even know about them. Prophets of old, the Old Testament people of God long to know these things. Angels currently long to know what you know, which is the is of what God is doing through Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so that's the is, but the is always leads to the ought. So in verse 13, we start to see the shift from the is to the ought. How ought we live in this reality? Okay, so let's read it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. The verses are the little numbers in your Bible. So starting in verse 13. Therefore, anytime you see that in Scripture, you know we're shifting now. Based on what was said before, now how ought you to live? Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will, will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you haven't been with us, here's what's going on. He's just said, you will have an inheritance, and that inheritance will be eternal, it is laid up for you in the, fu- in the future by Jesus. And if you turn to him and place your hope in him and connect to him by faith, you can be secure in the knowledge that you will gain that inheritance, which is a new land, a new resurrected body, just like Jesus' body, free from sin, free from the presence of evil, and you'll live in the presence of God with all the saints in a new heavens and a new earth. <laughs> That's what he's talking about. And, and, and when Jesus comes back, And he's planning to come back. He's told us he's coming back. At his revelation, you'll be glad that you'd set your hope on him and not on the hopes of this world. So you can go back and listen to uh, the first three sermons to, to get a better context of that. Verse 14. Because of this truth, as obedient children, 
Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, which is before you heard about this inheritance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Be holy. And that's the imperative. That's the command there. In all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. A reference to the Old Testament Leviticus. Verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Let me pause. There's, there's three words that I want you to connect. Do you see them? You see two times the word conduct, all your conduct, conduct yourselves, and then actually it's the same Greek word in verse 18 where it says, ransomed from your futile ways. So, Conduct, we don't really like that word, so actually just think of it this way. So be holy in all the ways in which you live. In all the ways in which you live, do so with fear throughout your time of exile. We talked about that in the first sermon, meaning you are exile elect. God has elected you to be exile. So you live in this world and you're sort of a stranger, sort of a foreigner, an alien, although this is your home because this is not your future home. And then he says, now the ways you used to live, which you inherited from your forefathers, are like this. Don't do those anymore. So your way of living, your way of conduct is clearly in view here by Peter. He says, Jesus has ransomed you, just like we sung about, on the cross by his blood from your futile ways of living. Don't do that. Live now in a manner that is holy. Now, what were you purchased with? What were you ransomed with? Second half of verse 18 says, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, verse 19, but you were purchased with, ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. For, uh, he, that's God, or sorry, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Okay? So, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For, this is verse 24, now he's quoting the Old Testament. For, all the flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of the grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that has been preached to you. Now, there's a chapter break here, but those were never in the original writings. So somebody put that in there. I think it's the wrong place to put it, because I think the argument continues. So, this is the good news that you've heard, that you should feel so lucky that you've heard. So, chapter 2, verse 1, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, and like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed 
you have tasted that the Lord is good. An amazing call to a new way of life. Because of what is and what you have heard is, it will affect the ought. And you should live in a different manner than you used to because of this good news that you've heard. That is the thrust of this entire passage. Peter seems to be saying, in light of what is, you should be holy just as God is holy. That's what we're going to look at today. Now, before we do that, because at this point, some of us, our skin is crawling and we're like, oh no, a sermon on holiness. This is why I stopped going to church. (laughs) This is why I try to read ahead and think about what we'll be talking about uh, and not come on those weeks. But listen, a friend of mine sent me a talk this week, a fascinating lecture that was given in Sydney, Australia back in June of last year, 2019, seven months ago, from perhaps the most popular intellectual um, thinker of the last few years. He has best-selling books, tens if not hundreds of millions of views on YouTube and through podcasts and, and online talks and debates and things like that. Now just for reference point, if any of you know who Tim Keller is, who's probably the leading sort of Christian intellectual, many New York Times best-selling books Tim Keller has, and I looked up on YouTube his top viewed videos of all time. And the most views that any of his videos have is 892,000 views, most of all time. This video that I was sent was put up seven months ago, and it already has 1.5 million views. And this particular intellectual, who I've decided not to tell you because I don't want you to Google it and look him up, is um, 18 million views. So I just want to show you, this is somebody that has sort of accidentally become a philosophical celebrity. And it's worth knowing about people like this because this is who the world is paying attention to. He sort of caught the attention of the world and we've got to ask, well, what is he talking about? What is he talking about that 18 million views for some of his videos or 1.5 for this particular video? And this lecture that my friend sent me is in response to a question that this uh, professor often gets. Because he's an intellectual, although he does not ever claim to be religious or claim to be a Christian, he does love to reference the Bible and Judeo-Christian philosophical truth And so people often ask him the question, do you believe in God? And this lecture is his attempt to answer that question, and it takes him an hour and 45 minutes, a man after my own heart, an hour and 45 minutes to explain (laughs) his answer to this question, and and at the end he finally gets to his answers, which is itself a question which goes like this, who dares say he believes in God? Hour and 45 minutes for him to get to (laughs) Who dares say he believes in God? And here's the fundamental rationale that he gives for his hesitancy. And and, and it's all related to holiness. Those are my words, not his. But But what he's basically saying is if God exists and I put my trust in him and I say I believe in him, then I'm responsible to live out that relationship in everything that I do. 
And he says, that terrifies me. Who dares say? That's what he's getting at. Now, who dares? I dare. And my heart breaks for this intellectual because he misses the gospel. I hope we don't miss the gospel too. But I wanted to share that story for you up front for two reasons. One, it's, an, it's, an, it's such an insightful question. Who dares believe in God? By a very insightful man, because he recognizes that to invoke a personal being such as the Christian God may be is truly a terrifying proposition. So who dares? That's actually a very good response to the holiness of God, if you understand what that is. More on that later. The second reason is, um, since his talk has been consumed by, by surely millions of people around the world, it's fair to conclude that people care about topics such as this, topics about holiness. His lecture actually begins with a long series of compelling existential arguments which push towards the conclusion that everyone is subject to some reference of holiness. Again, I'm using my word for holiness, but that's what he's talking about. A a reference point of holiness that is outside of themselves. He observes this, quote, Although many people today pretend to be the self-referential centers of their own moral universe, meaning that, that we decide what is right and wrong, ethical, unethical, moral, immoral, the reality is every human being, quote, seems to suffer from the pricks and arrows of his or her own conscience. Which seems to point to the fact, does it not, that we are indeed subject to something higher and uncontrollable when it comes to moral law, whatever that may be. The lecture goes, on, lecture goes on to say, our radical inability to command ourselves as if we were our own, that is, to, to, to be free from this sort of external correcting conscience, so, so to, to, to act as if we were our own, and, and we can't do that, our inability to do that leads to the unpleasant realization for many that, quote, we are not exactly masters of our own house. So he challenges the audience. He says, try controlling yourself. Try acting as if you are the fundamental source of your own values, independent of any transcendent ethical structure. Just try it. See if you can do it. Try it for a week, he says. Try it for a month. And he concludes... I've never met anyone that can do it for even a day. And I think he's right. Which is to say no one can escape the reality of their conscience, which is not self-chosen, but I think and he thinks is externally informed, which bears witness to the fact that we all know we might and should live a little bit differently, a little better. You could even say a little more holy or purer of a life, whatever that might be. Okay, so if you're a Christian in the room, this should be encouraging and empowering to you because if you're like me, your fear bubbles up when you when any conversation turns from the is to the ought. Am I right? You feel it. You're like, uh-oh, this conversation's turning towards how do you live a holy life or a righteous life? How do you do it? See, and you, and you start to swell up. It becomes very uncomfortable. But I want to say this to you. You should not feel intimidated as if you are standing on intellectually shaky ground because you believe in some external notion of holiness that transcends and drives you. 
whether people will admit it or not, they too feel this existential phenomenon. That they're not quite in control of what they think is holy or unholy. So if holiness comes up in conversation, welcome it. Ask really good questions. Listen with big ears to what your friends, family have to say about the pricks and arrows of their own conscience. Ask them, from where does that North Star come? Or where do you think that comes from? Or what do you think is actually going on there? How do you know if you're living well or not? Ask them questions. And then hopefully, the, after the rest of our talk this morning, you will be able to explain from your Christian perspective, if you're a Christian, how you understand this very common, universal, anthropological phenomenon. Maybe a little bit better than you did when you walked in here. If you're not yet a Christian in the room, we're so glad that you're here. This is one of the huge reasons that we exist and do this is so that you can come and consider these things in a safe place where there's no judgment, there's no um, exclusivity. We just want you to come and consider with us. I hope today, if, if you're not yet a Christian, that, that maybe something I say might explain better than anything you've, else you've heard before why you feel this existential phenomenon, these pricks and these arrows of your conscience when you live in certain ways that maybe in your head you don't even believe are wrong. So that being said, let's begin to parse this lofty command of Peter in verse 15, which says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now, real quick, what do you think the Greek word for all means? All. (laughs) Okay, that's why they translated it this way. All of it. Every part of your life, he's saying, you should seek to be holy as the God who has called you is holy. So, we must ask this first question. How do the Christian scriptures, that is this book, how, how do they define holy? Because we hear this word all the time, holy. The answer is this. God. God is holy. To be holy is to be God. God. See, they're synonyms almost. Um, in fact, they are synonyms. So if you finally come face to face with God and you're standing before him, you could call him by one of the many names that scriptures gives, gives to God, or that God has said, you can call me this, or you could just literally cry out, holy, 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 and you would be addressing the personal God. In fact, that's what Isaiah the prophet sees the angels who surround the throne of God in his heavenly vision. That's what he says, that the angels sing, holy, holy, holy. So they're synonyms. So this is so important to understand this. It's not that God has more holiness than any other creature or being, as if holiness existed apart from him. Like here's God and here's holiness, and God's trying to get some more of that holiness. It's not like an attribute, an advantageous quality that, that you can sort of that God can grow in. It's not like swagger. God's got some swagger. (laughs) He's got some holiness. No, he is holy. God is holy. He defines holy. And that's always how the Old Testament talks about God. And so what will happen in the Old Testament is when God shows up, the the ancient saints 
would consecrate the place and build an altar or eventually they'll build a temple and they'll say, this spot is holy because God showed up here. And where God shows up, that place is holy. And so we would consecrate it and we would make it a sacred space because God, who is holy, showed up here. It is a holy place. Now, if we're able to address him and we'll be able to identify his holiness, it is to say another important thing about the God of the Christian scriptures, which is that he is personal. He is not impersonal. So holiness is not an impersonal quality that just is around. It is a personal, um, necessary characteristic of the God of the Christian Bible. It is very, very personal, which means it's very distinct. Its, its reference point is fixed. It is not sort of floating around untethered. It's tethered to the personal God. Okay, so God is holy, but how else can we try to understand what it means that he is holy? If your mind is not stretching, we're going to stretch it just a little bit more. Now, let me just say, it's okay if all of this isn't clicking right now. I realize that. But I want to try to help you understand something more when you sing the words holy or you talk about holiness, okay? So let me stretch your mind even further. It's helpful to think of holiness, the holiness of God, in terms of another necessary quality of God, which is his infiniteness. Now, what the heck does that mean? (laughs) Well, you could describe infiniteness, again, a necessary quality of God, as a lack of limitation. Meaning, God is not limited by time, God is not limited by space, God is not limited in his power. But again, this very idea is so hard to wrap our minds around. Why? Because we are not infinite. We are finite with language that is finite. So we struggle to understand the infiniteness of God. So theologians have tried and tried. to. How do I explain this? And, and, and sometimes the best way to explain a characteristic of God that, that we do not in our being have is to appeal to the opposite of it. So what is the opposite of infiniteness? Finiteness. Well, now there's something I can understand. I have limitations. So I can understand the lack of limitation by saying God is something what? Other than me. And at the end of it, that's where you get. When you talk about the infiniteness of God, you're talking about the otherliness of God. That he is unique, distinct, completely different than anything else that exists. He is other. And guess what? Another another good definition of holiness is the otherness of God. God is completely other than us, which is to say he is holy and set apart. He is separate from us. He is the opposite of common, ordinary, and to use a very precise word that I kind of learned more about this week, he is opposite from the profane, which is another way of saying ordinary. Now think about that. Have you ever wondered why it's called profanity? Here's what we say when we're saying don't use profanity. It's when somebody speaks about God as if he were ordinary. See that? Using his name in vain is to say God as if he were 
a commoner. So the holiness of God is the otherness of God. He is alone, set apart, unique. He is so otherly that we cannot even comprehend how other he is. And so whatever God's excellencies are, which is a part of his nature and character and being, whatever that is, they are so otherworldly that we cannot even hope to grasp them in our finite nature. So we call them holy. And if this is the case, if this is God's holiness, how in the world can Peter tell us to be holy like God is holy? Are you tired yet? You see, there's so much meaning wrapped up in here. How can we be expected, if it's so beyond us, to ever participate in it? Well, one answer is this. The constant testimony of the scriptures, which, by the way, if you've never noticed, the Holy Bible. Why do you think we call it the Holy Bible? It is set apart. No other book is like it. It's one of a kind. That's why if you apply exactly the same characteristics of literature, literary criticism to this as you do anything else, you'll be lost and you'll lose it. It's holy. It's other. We have to understand how different it is. But what the Holy Bible tells about the Holy God is that he desires for his people to be set apart and holy or other or distinct from the rest of the world, to be a city on a hill, light in the darkness, a nation of priests. That is his desire, and he's working throughout this book. You read this book, you see him working to try to distinguish, to set apart, to make holy his people from all other peoples so that they might draw people into the holiness of God. So that's one answer. The second answer goes like this. We cannot be holy as God is holy, unless, of course, unless God intervenes and makes us holy. Which is to say, he must invite us into himself if we are to be like him. In Isaiah's vision of God's throne room that I mentioned earlier, His indescribable holiness, which leads the angels to just cry out, holy, holy, holy. The immense weight, the unordinariness of God, when compared to Isaiah in this vision, seeing him, makes Isaiah proclaim, I am unclean. God, send me away. I am not able to be in your presence. And God does what? If you know the passage, you can go look it up. He takes, one of the angels brings a hot coal and places it on the lips of Isaiah, and Isaiah's lips are made clean so that Isaiah might proclaim the holy words of God. So we have, again and again in Scripture, this idea that you can't make yourself holy, but God, if he chooses, can make you holy by touching you. So only infiniteness, so think about this philosophically if you're a philosophical thinker, Only infiniteness can beckon the finiteness to partake in it. It cannot be the other way around. Only holiness itself can beckon the ordinary to partake in it. And this is exactly what the Bible is teaching. That God chooses to call and invite people to participate in his holiness. Which of course brings me to Cinderella. Wait, what? Yes. Isn't it obvious? Cinderella was just an ordinary, plain peasant girl. Now, of course we know how the story eventually goes. 
But just imagine if you'd never seen Cinderella. She ends up being the princess. Spoiler alert. Sorry. Never seen it. And of course, it takes a little bit of magic, a little bit of the supernatural. But it all happens because the otherliness of the prince, of the royal court, decides to invite all the maidens to the ball. You see, that's completely other. Cinderella can't just choose to become royal. She cannot just choose to throw her own ball at the palace. She must be invited. And of course... All the maidens of the land are invited, and she goes too. The otherliness can invite the finiteness, the common, the ordinary, into participation with the otherliness. And no amount of positive thinking, no matter how beautiful she is, none of this could make that connection possible. It had to come from the castle. And as the story goes, um, this higher nature actually suits her quite well. So it's not that she is unable to participate. She's been created, designed to be able to participate in the otherliness. But she cannot cause her own upward mobility. And of course, this tale tickles our soul. So, why? Because it's actually a reflection of the gospel story. Of God inviting us to participate. We are just ordinary ragamuffins. We are not holy creatures. Our conscience bears witness to our inadequacy compared to that which is other. But we do believe that with a little help, or maybe a lot of help, and the invitation that maybe we could fit in. We are capable, no matter our origin of birth, to participate in the holiness of God. (laughs) I just love Cinderella. when we hear the gospel message or when we hear it even in a story like Cinderella and we hear of this invitation to the holy that we might participate with it that we might dance with the holy that we might become equals with the holy we also realize we'll never forget from where we came we will always know that it was the holiness of God that brought us up we won't forget. We should never forget. And so that leads, in a, leads to, uh, to this nature in us, which is one of humble confidence. There's no boasting in us because we know we didn't do it. But we know that when we receive the invitation, and with humbleness, and as Cinderella says, kindness and courage, we enter into the holiness itself, we can And even when we taste it and it's good, but then it all unravels and we go back to being ordinary and profane, 
what happens? Well, the prince doesn't stop pursuing. He comes back, doesn't he? He comes and steps out of the otherliness into the ordinary. And he walks on our roads and our streets. And he shows up in our house. And he reinitiates the process of the two becoming one. And that's how holiness works. And ultimately leads to holy matrimony. I told you this was all about Cinderella. And it's all about us. We're all Cinderella. So how does this work outside of the world of Disney? 2 Peter 1.4 says this. This is the second letter that Peter wrote to these same churches. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us, invited us, to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that, and here's the key phrase, so that through them, through these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Little old me, partakers of the divine nature. uh, Scripture teaches us that the one true God exists and has always existed as three persons within one unified Godhead. There's God the Father, our Maker, and He is holy. There is God the Son, our Redeemer, who put on flesh in the person of Jesus and walked amongst us. And while Jesus, He is holy. And while He was on earth, what happened? What happened when He touched somebody? They were made pure. Lepers were healed. The lame walked. The blind see by His touch. Remember the hot coals. He is holiness walking in our midst. And then there's the third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit, who Jesus says is your helper. Jesus says, I will send him to you so that all of you might be touched in the way that just a few were touched while God the Son walked on earth. And that Spirit is holy, which is why we call him the Holy Spirit. He's not like every spirit. He is distinct and other Far beyond. He is infinite where every other spirit is finite. And so Jesus on multiple occasions told his followers that that when he ascended into heaven, he would send the helper to supernaturally fill the hearts of all believers, who all, all those who trusted in Jesus, so that the holy God could be with them, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Father, who searches the mind of the Father, so that we can know how to be partakers in the holiness of God, the triune God. And why? So that we might be transformed into the image of Christ, the man in whom the full holiness of God dwelt. Look at verse 14. Back to the text. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who is holy is holy, you should also be holy. Now, 
In Romans 8.29, another of the apostles, Apostle Paul, wrote something very similar. He said, For those God foreknew, loved before and invited, he also predestined for what? He planned for them to be conformed to the image of his son. So not conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but be conformed to the image of God's son. That's Jesus, the Holy One. That he, that he, that's Jesus, might be the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters. And here's how we are conformed to the holiness of the Father, Son, and Spirit. At your conversion, you receive the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of holiness. And as, you, as long as you give him authority in your heart, the Spirit will do two things continuously. You know what they are? Two things. One, he will convict your conscience of unholy actions, thoughts, and lifestyles. It just won't sit right with you if you allow the Spirit to have authority. So you'll feel convicted by the Spirit. The second thing he does is he will direct your conscience to do holy actions, thoughts, and live holy lifestyles. Why? Because he knows the holiness of God. He is God, the Spirit. So he will lead you to holiness, to be conformed and transformed. To do what? To do exactly what Jesus did. Who himself was full of the Spirit. He's the triune God in the flesh. And so the Spirit doesn't just work sort of willy-nilly, okay? How does the Spirit tend to work? Because, right, there are more than one type of Spirit. The Holy Spirit is other in power and knowledge and wisdom, but there's other spirits. How do I know it's the Holy Spirit? Well, the Spirit always participates with the revealed Word of God. So God said, how will people know if it's the Holy Spirit telling them to live and act and do these things? Well, let's put it down in paper, inspired by that same Holy Spirit, so that people, when they're wondering, is this what God wills and desires for me to live holy like he is holy, they can look and compare it to what I've already said. Let's double check. And so there are two witnesses God's so consistent. He says, when you're making a judgment, bring two witnesses. The witness of the Spirit within and the witness of the Spirit in the Word. And so what is that little help that we need? That little help that we need to go from ordinariness to otherliness. To be set apart, to be unique, to be one of a kind, to be distinct, to be noticed as different. We need a list of rules. We need boundaries. We need signposts that point us towards the extraordinary. That is the law in the Old Testament. That's the New Testament law of Christ because Christ fulfilled the Old Testament law. And holiness is always tied to this. No matter what religion or worldview you have, whether you're agnostic, atheist, Buddhist, Hindu, there are always, it's just a human thing to put together a helpful list of guidelines and signposts that point you towards holiness, right? It's a common anthropological experience to feel like there's a better way to live and a less good way to live, even if you're not religious. And really the question you have to ask yourself is, is this the true way? 
Is this what was inspired by the spirit of holiness? Or is this just another failed attempt to point people towards it? The law, the word, the conviction and direction of the spirit through the word is all meant to both guide people towards the holy of holies and safeguard the people from that which is outside that is trying to defile and press in on the people of God. So when you read the Old Testament, you hear about lots of the, uh, when you read about lots of the holiness laws and the purity laws, that's to protect people from the defilement that comes so that they might not be unnecessarily harmed or drawn away from true holiness. And so you can't get away from it. That's why it can be sort of, you know, we don't like to talk about holiness and, and, and you know, righteous living and these sorts of things because we feel like, man, I just, but everybody feels it. Everybody's following some law, some list of rules, whether it's written or unwritten. And the answer is, am I following the right guide towards life to the full, towards holiness? I can't make that decision for you. You have to ask that question yourself. Here's a great summary of those thoughts. Look at verse 22 to 25. Let's just read this. Having purified your souls, okay? Now that word purified in the Greek is actually just a modification of the word, same Greek word for holy. So having holied your souls by what? Your obedience to the truth, which is what? the word of God rightly interpreted through the living acting process of the Holy Spirit. So having holied your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, not fake brotherly love, sincere brotherly love, do this, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not by perishable seed but by imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This will bring you to life again. This will bring you towards holiness. Now, then he quotes, says, all flesh, that's my body, and all the things of this world are like grass, and it's glory like the flower of the grass. The grass, grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that, you, that was preached to you. Here's what he's saying. Listen, how many systems of belief and thought have come and gone. There's one thing that remains forever. Just do a quick study of history. Isn't it strange that this tiny group of Middle Eastern people known as the Israelites, known as the Jewish people, have remained through it all? What, what, what is that? What, what do they have? What are they being attached to? Why is it that Christians are still around? That's baffling to me. Perhaps it's because they are being fed by the living word of God. And it's wholly other, different. And for that reason, they persevere. But it will take our cooperation. It, it's, not, it's not magic and they just read the words and it just happens. We have to surrender to the Spirit of God moving in us so that we might become like the one, only, pure, and fully holy man that ever lived, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So why is Peter highlighting 
this holy living to churches? Why is he focusing on this? Well, guess what? It is so difficult to live a holy life in the midst of persecution, in the midst of pushback, in the midst of ridicule. Because when our anxiety creeps up in us, what happens? We turn to coping mechanisms, right? And this was happening for those in these churches that Peter wrote to. The anxiety that was building in them was leading them to wonder, should I keep living this way? This is hard. And they probably, like us, falling back on coping mechanisms, which what? Let's be honest. Often are what the Bible would call sinful behaviors that don't lead us closer to God, but actually create separation from God. What, what are your coping mechanisms? When you feel anxiety, where do you turn? What are the habitual sins that keep coming up in you, probably tied to high stress and anxiety? Listen, it was happening in the early church. It was happening for people that saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. So we're not condemning, we're just saying, identify it and understand what it is. And guess what? You're going to need some motivation to act in accordance with God's word when anxiety flares up. So Peter knows that, and he gives us five motivators. Throw those up on the board. We'll go through these very quick. Motivator number one. When it's hard and you feel like you're going back to your coping mechanisms and habitual sin because you just want to get out of that anxiety. Motivator number one. Why you should pursue holiness like God is holy. It's our only means to reciprocate love to our God who has showered us with incomprehensible mercy and grace. This is the only way to be obedient to him, particularly in the face of our anxiety. We turn to him. This is the way we love him. What a great motivator. Now, that motivator sometimes falls short. So here's another motivator. You actually get to become more like Jesus Christ who is God. You get to be like him. You hear what I'm saying? Imagine if, if you found yourself in a back alley, strung out, broken down, lost, headed for sure, meaninglessness, painful destruction, and death, and a well-to-do, high-standing businessman of the city came, walked in, saw you, had pity on you, picked you up, walked you to his car, drove you to his house, nursed you back to health, strengthened you physically, emotionally, until you could work again, and then he hired you at his company at a very good wage. He restored your dignity, purpose, meaning in life. And one day he came to you and said, Son, I'd like to bring you into my inner circle and mentor you about life and business and living rightly in the world. Would you accept my offer? And you turn to him and you say, No thanks. Thanks for everything you've done for me, but I think I pretty much got it from here. You get to be like your Savior. What are we doing? Motivator three. Jesus will come unexpectedly when we want, <laughs> whether we're ready or not. So we want to be ready. There's another, at the very beginning of this passage, just look at this real quickly with me. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. 
There's another place this almost exact same phrase occurs, and it's in Luke's gospel, and it comes out of the mouth of Jesus, where Jesus says, stay dressed for action. Be ready for action. And the context on the front end is his great teaching about anxiousness and how God even clothes the flowers of the field and gives food to the birds, so don't be anxious. And on the back end, guess what it's talking about? His coming again. His return. And he uses the same word. You think Peter, who was there, is thinking about that? Remember when Jesus told us, be ready for action. Prepare your minds for action. Be dressed and ready to go in case Jesus comes back again. And here's the terrifying truth, that Jesus is coming back again. Now, it says in that passage that the groom will come. When you don't expect it. So be ready because he's coming and he's going to knock on your door. And I read this this week and I was like, this is like so terrifying. Think about all the things in your life that you're, you're wondering. Is this in accordance? Does this conform with God's holiness? Is this the right way he wants me to live? Think about those things in your life. Make a mental note. Think about them. What are those things that you're always wrestling about? And I know that you want to know What's true and right and good? Think, are you thinking about them? Now imagine when you're living into those ways, a knock on your door from Jesus. If that doesn't motivate you to deeply consider the word of God and am I living in the way he wants me to, I don't know what is. Peter's trying to recall for people what Jesus said, I'm coming again and you don't know the day and the hour. So always in all things be thinking about what it means to live in accordance with my holiness. Motivator four, don't avoid, or avoid minimizing the true cost of your salvation. In verses 17 through 21, what does he say? You were ransomed from your old ways of living by what? The precious blood of Jesus. The precious blood. You weren't bought with just some money. You weren't just bought with an idea. You were bought with the blood of God in the flesh. The pure, spotless lamb who deserved nothing and took on all the wrath for you. Don't minimize the true cost by not seeking to live a holy life. And finally, motivator five, which Ryan will talk about next week. When you live this way, you get to become the living temple that displays God's otherliness. So when the world looks at your way of life and sees that it is distinct and other and unique, and that's mixed with this amazing beauty and aroma of joy, the world starts to see God's holiness and how good it is, and then they want to pursue it and, and accept the invitation. Why? Because of how you've lived, because your way of life by it being so otherly and so holy. What a great promise that we get to participate in the world seeing the holiness of God. And I'll just say this to close. Look at, look at um, 2, 1 to 3. So put away, Peter says, all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into your salvation. This is a long road. 
Walking holy as God is holy, this doesn't happen overnight. This doesn't happen in a moment. This doesn't happen in a year. This is your whole life seeking to walk. Now, I have a young infant son, and I'm watching him learn to walk, and it ain't pretty all the time. He's running into walls. He's falling over. He's hitting his head on things. It's brutal. (laughs) And this will be your life of trying to be holy as God is holy. But don't give up. You have a chance to be conformed to the image of Jesus, who is God in the flesh, the holy in the flesh. If you follow him and allow his spirit to guide you and move you, you get to become people in the world who end up projecting the holiness of God. There was a early 20th century theologian, philosopher, anthropologist named Rudolf Otto, and he wrote a book called The Idea of the Holy, and he said, Every, he studied all, uh, cross-section of all of humankind, and he saw this common thing about the holy, whatever it is that they described as the holy. He called it the mysterium tremendum, which means the terrible mystery, that when people encounter the holy, whatever they define it to be, there is this combination, this conflicting feelings of, of, of both excitement and wonder and also fear and terror. So for some people, when they encounter the holy, right, when they encounter the true holy, which is God, they will be repelled and they'll run, and others will be fascinated and drawn in. And in the same way, when you become holy as God is holy, you will experience the same phenomenon. As you grow closer in your union with God through the Holy Spirit, through walking in his ways and obeying his commands in scripture, you will become to people mysterium tremendum, a terrible mystery. And they will recognize you in something that either attracts them and draws them in and wants them to find out more, or it will repel them and they will try to move you out of their space, out of their city, out of their world because you are a terrible mystery. This is the life that Jesus lived. He repelled and he attracted. And this is the life, if you allow God to make you holy as he he is holy, you will get to live. And whatever happens, if people are repelled by you or if they are attracted to you, a great thing will happen. You will accomplish your mission in this world, which is to force people by your presence and holy living, force them to consider Jesus. Let's pray.